Now, guys, go back with me to um, Esther chapter 5. I'm going to read you a fairly lengthy passage. Um, I'm going to start at I'm going to start at five one, but I'm going to read into chapter six. But uh, I don't like to read passages this long. But just know this: <clears throat> the only thing inspired that you will hear today is what I'm about to read to you. The rest of it that comes from me is quite uninspired. This this is something that the Holy Spirit has authored, and He intends for us to take a listen. You follow as I read <clears throat> from that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired. Esther chapter 5 at verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room and opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king, Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Azurus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been given, has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. (laughs) The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God 
it endures forever. You know, guys, one of the, one of the problems of preaching a series here at Grace of Man is that it so often gets interrupted, sometimes for lengthy periods of time. The last time that I spoke to you out of the book of Esther was on um, September the 30th. And then we had our missions conference, which is a significant event, event in the life of our church. And then um, the Lord's Supper, uh, which we feel like is important enough to interrupt anything uh, as we observe that sacrament. And then, of course, last week I was on vacation, which is very important. Um, and so here we are, October the 28th, almost a month uh, in between the last time we talked about Esther. So let me, let me start by just giving you a quick, and I do mean quick, thumbnail sketch of the story. The story that's contained in the book of Esther. The, uh, the story takes place in the Persian Empire. The king is Xerxes. His uh, biblical name is Ahasuerus, but his Greek name is Xerxes, and we know that one better. Um, Xerxes is uh, throwing a big banquet, a banquet that lasted six months long. Um, and what he's trying to do is to galvanize the support of all of his governors across the provinces for his upcoming invasion of Greece. He does invade Greece and he's defeated, but that, that's later on. But um, he's having this big banquet that lasts six months. And in the midst of all of their drunken stupor, he decides to impress them with one other, in one other way, and that is to call his wife in. Her name is Vashti, and she apparently is gorgeous. And um, he wants to have her brought in so that he can show her off. Well, she refuses to come, which uh, sets in motion a cultural crisis um, which is resolved by the, the conduct of an um, empire-wide beauty contest, a Miss Persia beauty contest, where all of the beautiful women in the empire are brought in to, uh, to be made more beautiful and to see if they can please the king. That comes to a conclusion by, with the selection of a young woman who is a Jewess, whose name is Hadassah, uh, but her Greek name is Esther. And Esther then becomes the queen. Right about that same period, her uncle, who raised her, Mordecai, overhears a conversation about two men who plan to assassinate the king. Uh, Big Thana and Teresh are going to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai hears it, reports it, it's investigated, found to be true, and these two men are summarily executed. Um, about that time, the, the great villain of the story enters. His name is Haman. He hates the Jews, but particularly he hates Mordecai, Esther's uncle. Hates Mordecai because Mordecai will not bow and scrape to Haman. And Haman, by the way, is number two in the kingdom. He's got all kinds of power, but Mordecai will not bow to him. And so Haman cooks up his own little scheme to um, execute the Jews and he manipulates the king into signing this document that says in about 12 months, we're going to exterminate all of the Jews in the entire empire. Mordecai hears about that. He, through an intermediary, goes to Esther and says, Honey, you got to do something about this. And she at first says, eh, Well, I'm not so interested. And then as they continue the dialogue, she comes to the place where she finally says, Chapter 4, verse 16. If I perish... I perish. And that's where we've come to. And I've read you this morning, chapter 5 and into chapter 6. Now, guys, I know you don't remember this, but I remember it, and I, and I said it a month ago. I want to I start with it again. 
In the book of Esther, Esther is mentioned in the book 37 times. Of those 37 times, 14, in 14 of them, she is called Queen Esther. 13 of those 14 times occur after she says in chapter 4, verse 16, if I perish, I perish. Do you get that? 37 times, 14 times she's called Queen Esther. 13 of those 14 occur after chapter 4, verse 16, which is where she says, if I perish, I perish. Now, guys, the narrator is trying to tell you something. The narrator is making a point. Um, he is saying to you that from this point forward, from 416 forward, Esther is a new woman who is heroic and bold and skillful and wise. She's no longer this this compromised, weak, slutty little plaything of the king. And, 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 the, and the narrator wants you to see that something has happened on the inside of Esther. That a moral transformation has begun. 416 is a turning point in the life of Esther. She's a new woman. You might even say, at 416, Esther is converted. It's very similar to a conversion that you and I may have experienced. A conversion to Jesus Christ, where something happens to us that changes us for the rest of our lives. Just like it did Esther. And just like Esther, after we have come to faith in Christ, we are asked to make choices in every subsequent decision of our lives as to where we will stand. Just like Esther, we too, as Christians, have undergone a transformation of our character so that we no longer live like pagans. But ladies and gentlemen, be very certain about this. Obeying laws are not the things that made us new. Obeying laws can never affect transformation. Law, by nature, even God's law, is powerless to transform the character. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, ladies and gentlemen. And it's an inside-out job. It's not an outside-in job. Something happens on the inside of us first. And as a result of that thing, we, we, we call it the new birth, when God exchanges a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a character transformation begins such that every decision, every subsequent decision in our lives, 
we are being faced with a, with a choice. Where will we stand? Now, back to the story. Archaeological evidence has shown that Esther's fear, her fear of going before the king unsummoned, that she might lose her life, archaeological evidence has proved that that was not an unfounded fear. That's, that kind of thing certainly happened. But what you see here in chapter 5 is, as she goes, with her little heart just the pumping, the king holds out to the scepter to her, which means she's received. But you see, this woman now, who's appearing before the king, is a changed and a changing woman. And she has put together a wise, calm, confident plan, a plan which God ultimately uses to deliver his people. Gang, as soon as Esther chooses, up here in 416, as soon as she chooses to identify herself to the king as a Jew, she comes under Haman's edict of death. Guys, for us in the 21st century as Christians, when and if you choose to take a stand for Jesus Christ, you too will become a part of a people who are targeted by, by those who want to destroy the work of Jesus Christ in history. Gang, if you dare to believe something as weird as, say, the resurrection or miracles, you can expect hostility. Jesus promised us that. It may not be the same kind of hostility that, that the Jews faced, but you can, you can count on things like being socially ostracized or academically marginalized or professionally overlooked if you choose to identify with this condemned people. Now, gang, notice this. As a result of her identifying with God's, with these Jewish people, not only is she transformed, but she now also becomes a mediator. A mediator for God's people. She can get into the presence of the king. Now, gang, listen. <laughs> because I, I, I think this is rich. She identifies herself with the condemned people. She then becomes their mediator. She becomes their mediator before the king of all authority. The king then confers 
pleasure on favor on her. And eventually, that favor is conferred on the condemned people. Does that remind you of anyone? Gang, if you're confused about that, I'll connect the dots for you before we quit. Esther's got a plan. And her plan takes the form of a banquet and then another banquet, a second banquet. In between these two banquets, Two very significant things happen. Number one, Haman goes home full of prideful excitement. He goes home after banquet number one, full of prideful excitement. I mean, Haman is riding high, very proud of himself, and why not? I mean, he alone was invited to this banquet and nobody else besides the king. But his lone disappointment, mentioned in 513, is that Mordecai still won't bow to him. But Haman knows that Mordecai's days are numbered. And so, egged on by his wife, Haman is encouraged to build a gallows 75 feet high, not realizing that that is just a measurement of his own pride. And he ends up building the instrument of his own destruction. That's something that happens between banquet one and banquet two. The second significant thing that happens between Banquet 1 and Banquet 2 is a sleepless night. Guys, you've got to see this. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. On that night. You know, guys, one of the things that I've pointed out about the book of Esther is that God has not once been mentioned in this book. Can you see him there? That night, that night after banquet one and before banquet two, the king suffers from insomnia. Of all nights to suffer from insomnia, that night. Some of you have heard of the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is not an inspired translation, but it is a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, and it's a reliable one. And the Septuagint translates 6-1 this way. It says, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. Now, guys... The Lord is not mentioned in the Hebrew text. But the Septuagint has given you the sense 
of what is unfolding here. On that night, the king's sleepless night is the pivot point of the literary structure of this story around which a great reversal of destiny is about to take place. Guys, who is really governing the action at this point? Do you see it? I mean, who's in charge here? Haman? (laughs) Xerxes? Nonsense. No, ladies and gentlemen, it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's in charge here. He's firmly at the wheel and he's steering the ship any way he likes to steer it. Now, gang, at this point, I want to introduce you to two new words. Well, actually, one of them's not so new. They're literary words. They're used in literature and drama. I didn't know this first word. I found it in the commentaries that I read in preparation for these sermons. The first word is peripety. P-E-R-I-P-E-T-Y. Peripety. Have you ever heard of that word? I had not. Peripety. A peripety... In a, in a story, in a literary work or a piece of drama, refers to a sudden turn of events that reverses the intended and the expected outcome. A peripety is a turn of events that reverses everything. Ladies and gentlemen, you are seeing a peripety. Taking place right here. The other word that I have used before is the word denouement. It's a French word. But it is another literary term. It it has to do with the unraveling of the complications of a dramatic plot. A a denouement is the resolution where all of the various uh, strands of the plot line come together and are finally being untangled and resolved. Peripety. And denouement. And both of those things are happening in this story as a result of a sleepless night. Guys, in spite of having all the power of the Persian Empire at his disposal, Haman, his carefully laid plans to exterminate the Jews, backfires. Simply because the king Had a sleepless night. Folks, the narrator of the story is suggesting that beneath the surface of human decisions, beneath the surface of human decisions and actions, is an unseen and unpredictable power at work. Ladies and gentlemen, he's still unseen. 
He's still unpredictable. And he is still at work. Guys, this tension between the Jews of Persia and, and their enemy, Haman, is not only resolved, it is resolved through reversals. Peripety. And an event intended to harm the Jews actually results in the opposite against every human expectation because it is so unexpected, because it is so unpredicted. That's the point. It's so God. Have you ever had the wind knocked out of you? I was watching football yesterday, and, and um, there was a starting quarterback that went to the sidelines because he had gotten the wind knocked out of him, and everybody thought he was hurt, and it turned out he wasn't, and he came back in. But uh, I remember as a young boy um, getting the wind knocked out of you, you know, playing football in the backyard with the, the boys in the neighborhood, and, and everybody's just having a delightful time um, skipping around and playing in the backyard, and all of a sudden you get tackled, and and you get the, the wind knocked out of the breath knocked out of you. And you, you, you lie there for a couple of seconds and you think, I'm going to die. <laughs> I, can't, I can't get my breath. I mean, it's really kind of a funny thing. Haman had a day like that. Not just a couple of seconds. He has a day like that where his life goes from ecstasy to agony. All because of a sleepless night. There's one other thing. You don't remember this, but let me, let me try to refresh your memory. Back in chapter 2, beginning of verse 19, when Mordecai overheard the plot that was being hatched to assassinate the king, and he reports that, and, you know, they investigate, find that it's true, and execute the perpetrators. You see there, don't you, in chapter 6, that nothing was done to reward that man who did that. This whole sleepless night, where the king gets... Robbed of his sleep. And so he wants to have read to him the Chronicles. That sounds like fun. And in those Chronicles, he hears about what Mordecai done with Bigthan and Teresh. And he says, My, oh my. Whatever nice thing did we do for that guy? And they say, nothing. Nothing. We didn't do anything. If the king 
had not had that lapse of memory, back in chapter 2, if Mordecai had been rewarded back in chapter 2, Judaism would have ceased to, to have existed. And Hitler would have been very happy. But even worse, there would have been no Christ. And then the king says, well, that's got to be corrected. Why, we need to do somebody, to do something nice for that fellow. And he says, who's out in the courtyard? And who is it that has just walked in? Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, who is in charge here? Guys, think with me for a minute. How has God directed your life? Hmm? Has he ever used a loss or a, or a rejection, perhaps? Is it not true that, that God has worked in your life through, through events that were so unpredictable and so unexpected? That when those things happened, they seemed like these insignificant little things and then they turned out to be huge. Remember that story I told you about my writing that letter to Jimmy Latimer from seminary? Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, where, would, where do you think I would be today had I not written Think about it. Um, think of the, the, the circumstances that led up to your meeting your wife. Well, you know, it was in college and, uh, you know, I was uh, late to a class and, and I spilled my coffee all over, this, uh, all over the floor. And this girl came by and she kind of helped me uh, clean it up. We got to talking and who knows, <laughs> we married. I guess it was just coincidence. Or what about all those circumstances that led up to you landing this job that you've got? Well, you know, I had a friend say, why don't you call them? They've got some openings. Okay, I'll call them. And, and you know, you're just lucky. Or what about, what of all the circumstances about that led up to you being led to Jesus Christ? Oh, I had a friend that bugged the daylights out of me. He wanted me to go to this meeting, and I, I, I didn't want to go to the meeting, but I got there, and I saw some cute chicks, and then, then I went inside, and I heard something I'd never heard before. I wasn't even supposed to be there that night. It's all... It's all... Coincidence, isn't it? You don't believe that. And this story tells you that ain't so. Who's in charge of all those rejections? 
Who's in charge of all those losses in your life? I'll tell you. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's steering this ship? I'll tell you who that is. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, when God seems absent, He's present. His silence does not mean His absence. God seems so distant. He seems so remote. And He has for so long. When in actuality, He's working all over the place. Tell me, my friends, where, where, where do you find yourself in this story? Are you still building your kingdom and quite happy with yourself? You better watch out for those Peripedies. My friend, you need a Savior. And you need a Savior right this second. But let me tell you about one peripety and then I'll quit. You know, we, we Christians, we have seen the ultimate peripety. What you and I deserve is nothing but death. And yet in an ordinary human event, a birth... In a, in a no-count little city known as Bethlehem, a baby gets born. And then at a very young age, that baby ends up on a cross. And because of his death and his subsequent resurrection, our destiny has been reversed from death to life. Against all expectations, God has promised and guaranteed life for people who deserved death. He has reversed our destiny. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is the one who lived in the ultimate palace. And he left that palace and identified with a condemned people. And he goes before the king, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And he says, not if I perish, he says, when I perish. And perish he did. And because he did, he got favor from the king. Favor that he has imputed. To a condemned people. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pivot point of the great reversal of history, ladies and gentlemen. Where sorrow has been turned to joy. Where condemnation has been turned to, to exaltation. Where, where defeat was turned into victory. Where death, out of death, has come life.
You know, guys, we, we no longer live in the Garden of Eden. I think that's obvious to all of us. Rather, because of sin, we live in exile. We live in a world where God is unseen, where he is unacknowledged, where he is unwanted, where he is unloved. And one of the great paradoxes of the book of Esther is that that God is omnipotently present even where it appears that he is the most conspicuously absent. You know, the last words Jesus said before he left. He said, go and make disciples of all men, and lo, I am with you always. And then he left. (laughs) And yet, ladies and gentlemen, our Lord is omnipotently present even where he is most conspicuously absent. Two quick things. Number one. You know what that ought to mean to us? It ought to mean we ought to be rejoicing. Our sins forgiven, ladies and gentlemen. We are eternally safe because of what Jesus Christ has done in our place. The other thing is this. I heard a preacher say this week uh, on a tape, I heard him say, I get paid to make you feel guilty. I don't like that. I don't, you, you, if you've been around here much, you know I don't use that much. But I, but you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, years ago, when Grace Evan first started, uh, I wrote a, I mean, I, we were given an outdoor sign, one of those outdoor advertising signs that is found on the highways, and, and I wrote the message on it. And um, the message on that sign was, just another church, question mark? Because I've always wanted us to be something different. You know what? We're just like every other church. 20% of the people are thoroughly engaged and 80% of the people sit on the sidelines. To you, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a part of the 80%, in the light of that gospel, how can you do nothing? Jesus said, make disciples. Where are you at this moment contributing to the making of disciples? Two things. Rejoice and get to work in the light of this glorious grace. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will remind us that in those times where we, where we think you're absent, you're not. That you are steering and pulling strings and robbing people of sleep and timing things that are just only the way that you could time them. And you are our God and our Father, our Heavenly Father, because of what Christ has done for us. Because of who you are, O God, 
our response has got to be some kind of some kind of participation in the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Would you show every person here where they can contribute? Not so much their money, but themselves. And then, Lord, if you've brought people here who have not yet met Jesus Christ, would you, would you cause them to see that there is a great peripety that we Christians have enjoyed And if they do not come to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, there is an eternity that awaits them that they will not like. O God of all glory and grace, open the eyes of the blinded now and cause them to see the beauty of the Savior. And we pray, of course, in his name.